What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. And this is part two of the live Q&A podcast slash recording, whatever you want to call it. I did part one where I went live in the Facebook group, answered some questions, put it out as an episode, got some great feedback, and there were some more questions that came in. And I also did a follow-up poll to see what other questions people had. Um, If you want to be a part of this while it's happening live, you got to join the Facebook group. So here's my shameless plug. Search the personality diet and neurotype training and join our community because we are just flat out the best community out there. And that is straight facts. So come join us. We've got some challenges going on to help you guys stay consistent. Uh, We're giving away a bunch of prizes right now, which is a lot of fun doing just some, some cool stuff as far as like making sure people get their veggies in, drink enough water, stay active, Um, just some stuff to bring the community together. We're all in this together. We're pursuing the same thing. Um, So the challenges are a lot of fun right now. Join the group. And there's also a ton of education in our unit section. So you can see all of our free masterclasses. You can jump into live Q&As like this one. And it's just a cool thing to be a part of. And we recently surpassed 1,000 members, which is crazy. I am incredibly grateful My favorite people in the world are my podcast listeners and my Facebook community. So I love you all and I appreciate you very much. So let's jump into the questions. And I'm going back to the original post, which was first question was about examining profiles of individuals who have gained muscle and lost body fat in terms of their basal metabolic rate and see if they can now eat more calories per day than when they were at their heaviest or if they must eat less. I'd be interested to know about how many extra calories a, a woman might be burn, burning certain, during certain days of her menstrual cycle and the pros and cons of eating maintenance calories on those days versus or as part of a structured plan. Finally, I'd like to know how much muscle can realistically be added at various chronological ages in both males and females. So we're going to have to break this question down since there's a lot of questions within that question. And I'm just going to start at the top, which is talking about the basal metabolic rate of somebody who has gained muscle and or lost body fat. So one of the things that we know is that muscle is more metabolically active and requires more energy to maintain. So in other words, if I am 180 pounds, or let's just use my actual weight, 190 pounds, and I have 150 pounds of muscle versus only 100 pounds of muscle, my basal metabolic rate is going to be much higher the more muscle I have. So at 150 pounds of muscle, the calories that I burn at rest, just hanging out, lounging, just to keep the lights on, just to keep all the different functions in my body going the energy demands are going to be much higher the more muscle I have. Now, fat also requires energy. However, it's much less. And, and actually, this kind of gets blown out of proportion sometimes. When you look at it as on a pound per, pound per pound basis, um, we're really talking about just a few calories. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. But I want to say, and please do not hold this as 100% fact because I need to check the numbers, but I want to say that muscle burns an average of like seven to nine calories um, per pound. And when you have a compared to one pound of fat, which is like four or five calories, it might be a little bit lower than that. So we're talking about a few calories per 
pound difference. So in other words, if I had you know, more muscle, those calories are going to add up based off of how much more muscle I have. So um, the other thing that we have to factor in with this question is that if somebody loses a significant amount of their body weight, their energy demands are going to get lower because they don't have as much weight to carry. So that's the other thing to consider is that if I am 200 pounds and then I drop to 150 pounds, the amount of calories that I need to maintain my frame at 150 pounds is much less than when I was 200 pounds. Um, it's just because there's more, there's less metabolically active tissue. There is less, um, you know, when I'm pressure on my joints and bones and that sort of thing, the heavier that I am, the more energy requirements it's going to be. Um, so what we want to try to do is understand the importance of maintaining muscle mass and building muscle through that process. So um, this is a pretty complex question, but the bottom line to understand is that muscle is a very inefficient tissue. In other words, your body has to work pretty hard to maintain it, which is a good thing because we want to increase our metabolic rate. We want to be able to eat more and not gain weight and having more muscle allows you to do that. Um, so then we also have to understand that as we diet and as our weight goes down, so does our maintenance or our, our total, um, you know, the requirements just to maintain that body weight. So that's another factor that we have to consider. Sometimes people who have lost a significant amount of weight are often disappointed when they find out that their maintenance is much lower than it used to be. Um, so that's part of the adaptive thermogenesis process. That's part of losing a significant amount of weight and then understanding your maintenance needs are going to change through that process. And that's also understanding the difference between muscle and fat as far as the energy demands to maintain each tissue. So when we talk about how many um, more calories a woman might be burning during certain days of her menstrual cycle and the pros and cons versus eating maintenance calories on those days, what I would rather look at, because you're basically your total daily energy expenditure is going to be a moving target, but we have an average, which is our maintenance. So rather than trying to figure out how much your daily energy expenditure is shifting based off of your cycle, which is going to be a very, um, it's going to be almost inconsequential. It's not going to make a difference. What makes more of a difference is going to be something like your non-exercise activity thermogenesis or how much movement you get throughout the day and things of that nature are going to be, you know, more important. So rather than trying to figure out when should I be, um, when am I burning more, what I would rather look at is during the phases of your cycle when you're able to eat more calories because of insulin sensitivity is higher and when you're able to push intensity during training um, because of the hormonal shift that goes on and when you're able to recover more efficiently from training. So in that first phase, like the first two weeks after your cycle, um, that's where we can really start to push intensity. We can push a little more calories. We can recover better because that is when estrogen is going to be a little bit higher and we're, we know that, that that's going to improve insulin sensitivity. Um, we're going to see you know, things in that, that luteal phase where, um, like I said, higher estrogen, better insulin sensitivity. Um, you're going to be able to train more intensely. You're going to be able to recover a little bit better. Then as we shift into that follicular phase, um, then progesterone starts to increase. And now we want to 
um, kind of manage things as far as how much you know, training we're doing, the intensity of training, insulin sensitivity is going to be a little bit lower. So it makes sense to dial back the training intens- the, the training intensity and also dial back um, maybe on the calories. So if you wanted to cycle things in that regard, that makes a little bit more sense to me than worrying about the kind of minuscule amount of difference of how much, how many calories you're burning. So um, during that, the, you know, the first two weeks of the cycle, yeah, we can increase activity, we can increase calories um, and cycle things that way. It's certainly something that um, makes sense because if you already know that during that back half of your cycle, um, insulin resistance is going to be a little bit higher. Insulin sensitivity is going to be down a little bit. Uh, if we can dial back the stressors on the body, so not working out as intensely and putting more emphasis on recovery, that makes a lot of sense for me um, to do it that way. So next question is, oh wait, I'm sorry. I skipped the last part of this question, um, which is how much muscle can realistically be added at various chronological ages in both males and females? That is a highly, highly individual question and answer. So it totally depends on the person. Naturally, the younger you are, you're going to have um, more, you know, sex hormones, testosterone, um, more, you know, estrogen for women, and you're just in a better position to build more muscle. As you age, one of the best ways to kind of help manage that is through strength training and not overtraining and managing stress and, and kind of keeping your circadian rhythm intact and not doing anything that's going to drive cortisol through the roof, um, managing your calorie deficit accordingly, periodizing your nutrition so we're not always playing the same card over and over again. You can absolutely still build muscle as you age. I think that this is something, this is a myth that oftentimes gets people in that victim mode where they start to blame how old they are for their inability to make progress. Does it get more challenging? Yes, absolutely. But you are still in control. So I think rather than taking a, oh, this is getting harder, so why even bother? I like to take the approach approach of empowerment and I can still do this even though it's going to be harder, that makes it even more worth it. And I think, you know, there's a great example of that, which I'm sure everybody knows. Um, If you go to train with Joan on Instagram, she's 70 years old and you can see her transformation and how much muscle she's built um, at 70, which is amazing. So it 100% can be done. Um, How much is going to highly depend on the individual, genetics, training age, training modality, lifestyle, like so many different factors. It's literally impossible for me to say exactly for male versus female and age, you know, one age versus another. It's definitely going to depend on the individual. But the bottom line is, yes, it's easier to build muscle when you're younger. However, you can still build muscle as you age and you can absolutely maintain the muscle that you have. And that's really always the thought process. What can I do to maintain the muscle that I have to you know, kind of create this overall lifestyle that allows me to thrive, that allows me to feel my best and perform my best and just be a better all, better overall person um, in every area of life. And I think that's the power uh, when we talk about the vehicles of nutrition and fitness. It's really about that overall health and wellness factor and not just being so myopic in our view of, of physical attributes, but also you know, when you feel better about yourself, the, the confidence, the improved relationships, you know, getting more enjoyment out of life. You know, I love the fact that strength training has been proven to increase 
the efficiency and effectiveness of our dopamine system. So we literally enjoy, we get more pleasure out of life. And it also impacts the endocannabinoid system, which gives us more sense of well-being and comfort and um, you know, just overall feeling good about life, which is an amazing thing. Strength training is literally the only thing that I know of that has that impact. And it also reduces depression. So let's look outside of kind of the narrow view and think about um, how amazing it is that we are able to do these things as we age and what that's doing for our quality of life. All right, next question. Now we can move on. So why can I be disciplined for a few months and make progress then go off the rails and wind up back where I started? This is like diet industry 101. This is the, the traditional way of dieting is literally this exact blueprint. It's discipline, willpower, white knuckle your way through a program, make progress, and then go off the rails and end up back at square one. This is literally how every diet program is established. And the reason for that is because it's, it doesn't factor in any individual variables that allow you to be consistent, that allow you to truly view this as a lifestyle, as cliche as that is to say. But if you feel like you have to use a lot of discipline and willpower and, and just fight your way through this process, it's only a matter of time until you crack. That's just human nature. The way that diets are set up, it's like, here's your set of rules. Now go follow them. And nobody's asking what you actually want to be doing. What do you value in your life? You know, what experiences do you still want to have? Do you want to be social? Do you even want to be tracking macros? Like all these different individual variables are kind of thrown out the window and it's just, here's our diet program. Now go follow it. And what we do is we want to be compliant. We want to get results. We're, we're pretty impatient. So we follow you know, as much as we can, we, we white knuckle our way through it. We use a lot of discipline, willpower, and inevitably we crack and we step. Once we sidestep that the rules, quote unquote, rules of the program, all of a sudden we feel like a failure. We're like, all right, well, I messed this up. So I might as well just keep messing up because why even bother? And then we end up realizing that, you know what? I actually want to be healthy and fit. And now we're back at square one. This was my reality for years. It took me learning this lesson so many times until I finally decided that this can't be the right way, regardless of what everybody else is doing, there has to be a more logical way. And that was when I started to really invest my time and energy into studying nutrition, learning the psychology behind it. And I have to say that it really does start with your mindset first. You have to be able to enjoy the process. You have to feel like this is something I can do for the rest of my life. It has to be sustainable. You have to you need discipline and willpower, but you want those to be on fully charged when we're talking about like a battery and discipline and willpower get drained the more you use them. You want those two th resources to be fully charged all the time. So when something bad, like when, when life throws you a serious curveball, you've got a fully charged battery to handle it. Whereas when we're doing the traditional sense of dieting, we're being asked to use discipline and willpower every single day, you know, thousands of decisions a day. And we're trying to like avoid eating this and this diet plan doesn't allow me to eat that. And, you know, all of a sudden you, you end up with a drained battery, which is, you know, what happens and then you go off the rails. And so I would highly encourage you to find out, you know, what have you been doing in the past? Why hasn't that been sustainable? What did you not enjoy about the process? Were there any positives about those diets that you tried? And how can we create something that actually fits within your lifestyle, what you're trying to accomplish, that actually factors in, you know, your personality type? And, you know, I talk a lot about personality types because that's one of the best tools we have to create compliance and consistency. 
it's not like we're circumventing any of the rules of thermodynamics or any of like the nutritional sciences. It's literally just a way to make the process more enjoyable and to make consistency easier to come by. So I know that if I have a dopamine dominant individual, they're going to be a future-based thinker, very reward-driven. So we're going to set up goals and we're going to set up the, the process and the plan in a way that caters to that dopamine sensitivity. So we're going to give them exactly what they need so they can stay consistent and truly feel like, you know what, this is rewarding. This is fun. I can keep doing this. Whereas if I have a serotonin dominant individual and they are a risk adverse individual because they have higher anxiety, they're going to need structure, organization, detail, information. Why are we doing this? What can I learn about myself through this process? They want to know everything about the process and why. So we have to just cater to the personality type. So that is kind of the, the process that I would go through is why didn't it work? Why didn't it feel sustainable? And then we start building through, um, you know, what works best for you as an individual. This is why I don't believe in automation. This is why I don't believe in algorithms. This is why I don't believe in making templates and trying to just put people through a system without actually understanding who they are and what they truly value. All right, next question. Is weight maintenance a myth? It is definitely not a myth, although we have in our, I would just say in our society, let's call it, we have a weight maintenance issue more than we have a weight loss issue because a lot of people try to lose weight and succeed. And for the reasons that I just mentioned, they can't maintain it. Now, weight maintenance is kind of a dynamic thing because your maintenance needs are going to evolve over time through different phases of your life. But absolutely, you're going to have a uh, kind of like a body fat set point that your body feels comfortable hanging out at, where you don't really have to pay too much attention, kind of regardless what you do, you know, you're going to typically hang out in that same range. Now, when we try to manipulate that, it becomes a battle against some protective mechanisms um, that our body wants to keep us alive. Our body does not care that we want to be shredded. Our body does not care that we have to have a beach vacation that we want abs for. Our body cares about survival and our bodies are very smart and adaptive. So it can feel like maintaining a lower body weight is a myth because it's very challenging and a lot of people fail through that process. But oftentimes it's just, a, it's just doing things in the traditional dieting sense that we know statistically does not work. So again, going back to what I said in the, in the previous question, it's about finding the sustainable method for you as an individual and knowing that your maintenance needs are going to change as you lose weight, as you continue to shape your body um, and get to a lower level of body fat, if that's your goal, um, we have to understand the process. We have to understand what protective mechanisms our body is using against us as far as, you know, increasing hunger and lowering, lowering energy output. And, you know, we want to mitigate some of those metabolic adaptations to make the process more sustainable. And there's so many different tools we have in our toolbox, but the right tool for the job is going to be dependent on all of your unique variables. So we don't want to just say, that's why I always hesitate to just say something like, you know, everybody should be doing macros or everybody should be using refeeds or everybody should be doing intuitive eating because the correct tool needs to be applied to the proper job. And that depends on context and the individual. So um, weight maintenance is not a myth, although I know why it feels that way. I just think that a lot of people are going about this whole process and in, in a way that is not, uh, you know, it makes sense 
based off of the way that our brains are wired, based off of the need for instant gratification, based, based off the, you know, how impatient we are. I know personally all too well that feeling of just not being comfortable in your own skin and wanting to change so badly and just wanting to make it happen right away and just rip the bandaid off. But um, I had to rip the bandaid off, you know, so many times and fall back down and, and keep, you know, backtracking and starting over again. And um, before I got it right. So I, I understand why it feels like a, a mental barrier to break through, but I can tell you that it's certainly doable. Um, it just takes a little bit of consideration and patience and understanding, um, you know, some of the nuances that, that our bodies kind of throw at us and how to mitigate some of that stuff. Next question, best way to stay consistent. Um, so kind of going back, this is like all three of these things are kind of falling on the same theme, but consistency is something that first you have to frame what consistency is for you because that can be highly variable based on the person. If I want to step on stage and compete, consistency is like 99.9% of the time I have to be dialed in. Consistency for me to live my life looks a lot like 80%. And to break that down, 80% of seven is 5.6. And I, I know this off the top of my head because I often use this and play it in my mind that if one day a week I'm kind of just doing my thing and not really paying attention and just eating and enjoying myself and being social, cool. I still am within that 80% range. And then if one meal outside of that one day, I have a free meal, I'm still, that's kind of like one day and a half a day that I'm, you know, more flexible. So that falls into that 20% flexibility. So I'm still consistent. Although a lot of people, if they had a day where they, you know, went out, went out with some friends, had a drink, got a burger and fries, you're going to feel inconsistent because you've never actually framed what consistency looks like within your life. And so first I would start with the frame um, because that can change your entire perspective. One of the best things I did a whole podcast on like how to factor in free days and um, alcohol and all this stuff. And when you build it into the front end and you actually frame it within your plan, all of a sudden consistency looks a whole lot different. And you start to feel different about it when if I go out on Saturday and I know that's my free day and I enjoy a burger and fries, I know that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. So I still feel consistent. Um, and, and it's just understanding those little nuances about framing and looking at your lifestyle, looking at, you know, what do you want? Like, what do you actually want to do? How many days do you want to track? How many days do you not want to track? How many free meals do you want? How many, you know, like foods that you enjoy that may not be the best choices in, you know, in your overall plan, like a cookie or um, ice cream or whatever. How many days per week do you want to enjoy that food? And start to actually plan it out ahead of time and understanding what consistency looks like. The second part of that process is keeping promises you make to yourself. So setting up little wins that you know you can accomplish regardless of what life throws at you. And I like to start small because it's human nature to be like, all right, well, I'm going to start 10 different habits right now and I'm going to knock it out of the park. And then we, we go from zero to a hundred and then we fall down and we have to start back at zero again. Typically start back at negative one because we often go through this self-sabotage phase when we try to bite off more than we can chew. So start with something super small that you know you can commit to every single day and get that win and keep that promise to yourself. It could be literally making your bed every morning and you stay consistent. You keep that promise to yourself. It could be you know drinking a glass of water when you wake up just setting up some form of structure, morning routine, um, 
first you have to frame that consistency. Then you have to keep the promises you make to yourself. The more that you do that and the more you begin to identify as the person that you want to become, the easier it's going to be. So I would also look at without knowing, you know, fully the context of, of what you've been doing in the past, but going back to like my previous other questions, oftentimes we're setting ourselves up for failure because we're doing something that we don't actually want to be doing. We're just following someone else's rules because we think that's what we need to do. And your instinct is going to pull you out of that because if it's not consistent, it's not in alignment with what you value and what you want to be doing. It's just a matter of time. So if somebody told me, Hey, you can never eat carbs again. I'd be like, you know what? I can try that. I'll do that. It's only a matter of time until I crack and I eat carbs and then I feel like a failure. And then I'm like, why can't I stay consistent with that? Because that doesn't align with what I enjoy and what I want to be doing. So why, do, why would I try to do that if I understand the context of what does consistency look like for me? What do I actually want to be doing? What do I value? And then I can start to put the pieces together. But at the end of the day, you have to keep the promises you make to yourself. So you have to start small and earn that trust in yourself that you're going to show up and you're going to do what you actually say you're going to do. And then you can layer on top of that. So starting with one thing that's like a surefire can't miss, like making your bed every day and then adding on to that, like drinking a glass of water every morning and then adding on to that, like getting to the gym three days a week. All of a sudden, you start to identify as this person you want to become. You are somebody who keeps their promises that they make to themselves. And now consistency is a lot more uh, it's a lot easier to come by. And um, I did a whole masterclass on consistency. So you can go into our Facebook group, check out the unit section, another little shameless plug for the group, personality, diet, and neurotype training. Go to the unit section and you can check out, I think it was the very first masterclass. So it's all about consistency and just some, some little tips that, uh, that you can use. All right, so we are moving right along. Next question is... I believe you mentioned this in one of your videos, podcasts, or emails. You mentioned macros are different for everyone and are based on lifestyle, activity, goals, etc. You also mentioned that you would possibly assign higher fat macros to someone with a sedentary job as opposed to higher carb macros. Just curious as to why that makes a difference. So let me first say that if protein and calories are equated, Research shows that it doesn't really matter. When it comes to body composition, if I know that I'm, let's just say I'm trying to lose fat and 2,000 calories is my deficit and I have, you know, my protein set, if protein is equated, protein and calories, so I've got the same protein target, the same calorie target, and I adjust my fat and carbs, but I'm still landing at the same protein and the same calories every single day, regardless of fats and carbs, Research will show you that that does not matter. Where it does matter and why I think it's a good idea to factor in lifestyle, training, activity is because we want to be metabolically flexible. And a lot of people think that they want a fast burning metabolism. They want a very efficient metabolism. Really what you want is a flexible metabolism because a fast or efficient metabolism doesn't really help us in today's kind of I guess we'll call it food environment. Like we really want to be able to um, eat more without gaining weight. And so if my body's like super efficient, um, that's not going to be the best way to do that. Now, if I have a metabolically flexible metabolism, that's going to be super beneficial. And by the way, Dr. Mike T. Nelson is like the, the pioneer 
of metabolic flexibility. And now it's starting to gain popularity. He was talking about this, like literally from my knowledge, like 10 years ago, but maybe even before that. But um, I heard Dr. Mike talk about metabolic flexibility, like at least 10 years ago. And now it's kind of resurfaced as something that everybody thinks that they are coining this phrase, but um, it's not a new concept, even though you might've just heard about it. Metabolic flexibility is essentially that we want our bodies using the best fuel for the job. And if you think about, you know, different energy systems and fuel demands, carbs are going to fuel higher intensity activities better than fats. So if I want to, you know, push a high intensity training session, um, you know, like I'm doing hit intervals or I'm doing sprints or I'm doing like orange theory or I'm doing a, a cycle class, um, anything that's like higher intensity, that sort of thing. Or even if I reach above, you know, this like metabolic threshold of doing like high, you know, cardio for a long period of time. So like a marathon runner, um, carbs are going to be the premier and primary and preferred fuel fuel source for those activities. So what I want is for my metabolism to be flexible to know that, all right, we're shifting into carb burning mode when we're doing more intense activities. So a metabolically inflexible person might burn more fats than carbs during high intensity activities. And that's not going to be beneficial um, in the long run from, from an overall metabolic perspective. Then on the flip side of that, a metabolically flexible person, once their body registers, all right, we're doing some high intensity stuff, they're going to shift into carb burning mode. And fats are going to be the preferred fuel source for low intensity activities. So things like walking, like what I'm doing right now, just on here, talking, fidgeting, that sort of thing. So metabolic flexibility means that we're going to use fat as fuel in the right context, which would be just kind of lounging around, being more sedentary, walking, low intensity stuff. And we're going to shift to more carb burning um, when we are doing more intense activities, higher intensity stuff, weight training, um, you know, trying to hit a one rep max, doing things like that. Um, Like I said, orange theory, soul cycle, stuff like that, where the intensity is higher. That's where we want to shift into more carb burning. So to increase metabolic flexibility, that is why I would say for somebody who's more sedentary, then I might give them higher fats than carbs. And somebody who is more active, who has a higher energy demand, who's doing more intense activities, who's just more active overall, I'm going to probably give them more carbs over fats. It's to improve metabolic flexibility, which is a important marker for health. You know, for when we're talking about overall health, um, we want a metabolically flexible Uh, We want to have metabolic flexibility. We want our metabolisms to be flexible. Um, And that's something that, you know, you can assign and adjust macros, even though it's not going to matter for the overall body composition for just trying to lose weight. It absolutely matters for for overall health. And and just, you know, again, for kind of putting ourselves in, in an optimal state to be able to rely on the correct fuel source at the right time. All right. One more question. If you feel a boost in mood from taking L-tyrosine, is it bad to take it daily? Um, A lot of people feel this way. So if you have low um, dopamine, you might feel a little brain fog. You might feel lack of motivation, low sex drive, um, kind of lethargic, that sort of thing. 
maybe depressive-like symptoms. L-tyrosine is a precursor to dopamine, and it is something that you can absolutely take daily to help. Um, now, I do recommend cycling off of it so you don't become dependent on it, but it's something that you can absolutely take daily um, to help increase dopamine. Um, one of the best pre-workouts or just to take first thing in the morning. So oftentimes for like dopamine dominant individuals, I'll have them take a gram in the morning and then a gram before training. Um, and that can really kind of amp them up and get them in a good uh, neurological state for training. So um, something that I do recommend uh, for certain types of individuals, it's something that you can definitely do daily. Um, however, I would also like to assess why uh, dopamine was low in the first place so we can address some of the lifestyle variables so that you don't have to rely on it. But it's totally fine as a supplement to take daily. But I do recommend cycling off of it and then again, circling back to um, you know why, why dopamine might have been low in the first place. Um, all right, so we're going to wrap that up right there since that is the questions on the two threads. Um, this was a lot of fun. Another live Q&A episode. I appreciate you guys who tuned in on the Facebook group. Um, for those of you listening on the podcast, you should probably come join us. The personality diet and neurotype training. I'm just going to shout it out one more time because um, we're doing some cool stuff in there and I want you to be a part of the community. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please take a screenshot, share it on Instagram. You know what to do. Tag me at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. Um, and thank you guys for listening. I will talk to you all next time.